politicians are the virus. Yeah, man, maybe I am dumb. You think you're free? You think you're free just because you can't see the cage they keep you in? Fauci jerked off a pangolin, and now we all have COVID. It's us against them, guys. Get out there and spread that love and liberty. Let's go. Welcome to The Dad Presents, guys. So today we're going to be interviewing Dr. Mateus Desmond. And he's on the other side of the world right now. So it's 3 a.m. here right now in Los Angeles. And daddy has already had his nightcap and his Benadryl. So bear with me because this might get rocky. All right. Uh, so Dr. Mateus Desmond, if you're not familiar, Dr. Robert Malone, he brought us the term mass formation psychosis during his interview with Joe Rogan several months ago. You know, the one that that nearly ended the world that had all the all the elites wanting to cancel Joe Rogan for misinformation. Well, uh, Dr. Robert Malone brought up the term mass formation psychosis, and that term has been coined by Dr. Desmond. And that's what we're going to be talking to him about today. But first, I want to touch on a couple things with you guys. And the first thing is we touched on it quickly last week, but I want to hit at it again. And I might hit on this one every single show until they cancel this show because it's that important. It's Biden's new ministry of truth, the department of disinformation, as he's calling it, but it's a ministry of truth and it's horrific and it's terrifying because a society can't function if there's no freedom of speech. Freedom of speech is the most important thing in a society because once you put a government in charge of regulating what the truth is, that's just an, a recipe for absolute and total tyranny. And this is not my opinion. All you need to do is look at the evidence in world history. Every single dictatorship in world history, that dictatorship controlled the truth controlled what could be said and what could not be said. This is the most important right and liberty that we have, and we have to fight tooth and nail for it. Instead of me babbling on about it, I want to let Rand Paul wax poetic about it. I think you've got no idea what disinformation is, and I don't think the government's capable of it. Do you know who the greatest propagator of disinformation in the history of the world is? The U.S. government. Are you familiar with McNamara, the Pentagon Papers? Are you familiar with George W. Bush and the weapons of mass destruction? Are you familiar with Iran-Contra? I mean, think of all the debates and disputes we've had over the last 50 years in our country. We work them out by debating them. We don't work them out by the government being the arbiter. I don't want guardrails. I want you to have nothing to do with speech. You think we can't determine you know, speech by traffickers is disinformation. You think the American people are so stupid they need you to tell them what the truth is? You can't even admit what the truth is with a steel dossier. I don't trust government to figure out what the truth is. Exactly. Government is largely disseminating disinformation. Yeah, guys, look, Rand Paul, he's absolutely right. And and man, I don't ever like to flatter a politician too much because for the most part, the rule is they're scum. But Rand Paul killed it for two years with COVID, taking the fight to Fauci like nobody else would. And now he's picking up this fight. So all I can say is, is man, thank God, thank the universe, thank whoever you thank for Rand Paul, because this is a fight that cannot be lost. He's right. Our government has been the biggest purveyor of lies and disinformation. 
And I don't, I don't like to call it disinformation because what it has been has lies. They've knowingly lied to us for my entire lifetime. And in the past couple of years, they've ratcheted it up more than ever before. And now in, in the modern day we live in with the internet as open as it is and podcasting, people are able to communicate back and forth and pass true information and expose the government for their lies. And they hate that because it strips them of their ability to control us and control the narrative. So this is their attempt at taking the power back and be able to control speech, 100% control. Okay. And we can't let this happen. If you've never been involved in, in government or you've never been very political or you've never uh, canvassed a neighborhood about an issue, this is the one where we have to start. This is it. Now, the other subject I wanted to touch on very briefly before we had the doctor on abortion. Abortion. I, I, I hesitate because I don't like talking about it because it's icky and everyone has such a passionate opinion about it one way or another. And frankly, I feel like we are dealing with more pressing, important issues in the world right now than this. And we really don't need one more divisive subject lumped into the mix to divide us up and get us fighting with each other. However, that said, this is the dad presents, right? This is called the dad presents. We deal with parenting issues, and this has a tremendous impact on parenting, on life, on society in general. So we got to address it. Um, People have been asking me all week long how I feel about it. Friends, family, uh, people emailing the show. but. The question in itself is flawed. It needs to be more specific because there's how I feel about the Supreme Court's decision, number one, and then number two, how I feel about abortion itself. We need to address those separately because those are two separate issues. All right. Number one, the Supreme Court decision. Well, when Roe v. Wade was passed back in the 70s, they passed it based on the 14th Amendment. The 14th Amendment states that the state, the government, cannot infringe on anyone's life or liberty without due process. That is the 14th Amendment. I mean, it's much longer than that, but that's the essence of it. And if you read that long court decision about it, and it is long, and I have read it, and it is boring, it doesn't hold up constitutionally, in my opinion. The Constitution says nothing about abortion. So I'm fine with overturning it in that regard. But more importantly, central government fails. And our government, the United States, was not set up to be controlled by a central federal government. It was set up as a republic where where every state is supposed to be its own individual governing body, you know, an experiment of 50 independent states who are all working together as one collective. So getting rid of this decision, reversing this decision, does not outlaw abortion. That's something they want to tell you in the media to make people panic. Uh, get everybody fighting again. It doesn't, it doesn't outlaw abortion. It returns the power back to the states, and that's where it should be. If California wants to allow abortion up until five days after the baby's born, they can do that. If Mississippi wants to cut it off five minutes after conception, they can do that. That will be up to the voters in those states, and that's better than leaving it up to a central government and forcing 350 million people to live under rules they may not agree with. At least if you give the power back to the states, people have options. So that's how I feel about the court decision. I believe it should be overturned. Now, 
about abortion and the ethics of abortion, just like with every other issue, the way this one bears out for me is it's an issue about liberty. And liberty is synonymous with body autonomy. You should have the right to make decisions about your own body. I felt that way about COVID and everything that came along with that. And I feel that way about this issue and every other issue because I'm a consistent person with principles. However, body autonomy, there's something else to consider here. We have two bodies. You have the mother, you have the fetus. And we all agree in this society that murder is unethical and wrong. We agree with that. And murder is the killing of a human who doesn't want to die. So when we're talking about abortion, the ethics of it all come down to one question, which rarely gets addressed. One question, what is a human? What makes a person, a living thing, a human? That's what we need to determine in order to decide the ethics of abortion. Is a human determined just by having the DNA of a human? Does that make you a human? If so, then you're a human at the moment of conception because all the DNA is there. Or is a human someone who has been born? Or do you become a human once you could live outside your mother's womb on your own? Or is it something in between? What makes a person a human? And like I said, you, you rarely, you almost never, I've never heard anyone attack this subject this way. And I think the reason for that is because it takes, it takes, requires nuance and logic. And people don't like either of those things. People don't want to look at this with nuance. They want to have an opinion. It's murdering a baby or it's stealing away a woman's rights. And they want to react emotionally instead of being nuanced. But we're going to be nuanced. This show is nuanced. So I think 99% of the people in the world would agree that abortion, like the day before the birth, is wrong. So 99% of us would be in agreement that a baby doesn't become a human on the day of its birth. It was a human the, the day before. So in that case, when does it become a human? Is it when the fetus is viable? In other words, is it when the fetus can live outside the mother's womb? Well, maybe. But doesn't that depend on the medical technology of the day, right? So like a fetus in 1950, viability is not the same as viability today in 2022. You have babies now in 2022 that, that are surviving and thriving at like 23, 24 weeks. I have a friend with a kid like that who was, the, the baby was born eight years ago at like 24 weeks. It was less than a pound, perfectly normal, healthy child. 1950, that child would not have stood a chance. So that the, the fetus viability doesn't seem like a good rule either because it is subject to change depending on medical technology. So when does a fetus become a human? I'm not sure science has determined this. I'm not sure they have. I'm not sure there's a, a hard line answer for this. For me, I think what separates us from all the other animals in the animal kingdom, right? We're, we're a mammal. We're an animal like a dolphin or a dog or, or a cat. We're a mammal. What makes us human? You could say our DNA, but I don't think it's just that because I don't think most people would agree that when a sperm hits an egg two seconds later, 
all that DNA is there. I don't think people would call that a human. I don't think anyone would. Maybe, maybe some scientists will disagree with that, but I don't think most people would agree with that. So what makes us human? And for me, it's our ability to do what I'm doing right now, to think and reason and think abstractly and apply nuance, right? Most other animals, they're just going off their basic needs. No other animals are uh, thinking outside the box and, and making art. It's our, it's our brains. Our brains are what make us human. So what I believe is when the heart is beating blood and pumping it to an actual formed brain, that's when a fetus is human. That's the ethical line for me. And we don't know exactly when that point is, but it's believed to be approximately around 12 weeks. So that's the line for me. 12 weeks, that's what I'm going with. That said, I would like to see some actual resources devoted to making a definitive answer of what makes a human a human and at what point does that happen? That will give us a nice, clear, ethical picture on the whole abortion issue. And that's all I want to say about that. And I don't want to come back to this issue because it's just been talked about to death by everyone. However, I really don't hear anyone else bringing that angle to the discussion. So I wanted to throw it out there. And now let's talk about our sponsor, expressvpn.com slash the dad. Use expressvpn to look, man, you don't want government knowing every move you make on the internet. You don't want Google tracking you everywhere you go on the internet, collecting data, selling it, selling your data. They're using you to, to improve their bottom line. They're using you to sell it to, to, advertisers so they can effectively target you with products. And you don't need to be wasting your money on products right now. You need to be saving. You need to be buying some, some meat and canned goods and bullets and stocking up on that and stop buying trash that you see on Instagram. Get expressvpn.com slash the dad. You get three free months. If you don't dig it, you cancel before month four. You never pay a dime. Support expressvpn.com. It's, it's a great product. They're doing an important service for the world, giving us privacy. And by supporting them, you're supporting this show. And guys, I need your fucking support. Support me, guys. Come on. My titties are getting saggy. Give me some support. All right. Let's get into the show. Today, we are going to be spreading love and liberty with Dr. Mateus Desmond. Professor Desmond came into the public consciousness like, like a bombshell last year when Dr. Robert Malone referenced him and his points relating to mass formation and and how it was affecting COVID hysteria on an episode of the Joe Rogan experience. And that episode was viewed like 70 million times and just caused chaos in this country. Dr. Desma is a clinical psychologist in Belgium. He's a professor at Grant University. He holds a master's in statistics. So he's, he's you know, can see in depth into all the statistical misinformation we were given for like a year and a half. Uh, he's the author of several books, including The Psychology of Totalitarianism. You can find that on Amazon. We are honored to have Professor Desmond on the show. Professor, it's, it's 2 a.m. where I'm at, so I'm a little bit punchy, uh, but it's morning where you are overseas. How are you doing this morning? I'm doing fine, thank you, and thank you for inviting me, Matthew. It's yes, it, it's, it, I've wanted to talk to you for, for a long time. Uh, this show's taken strong 
strong stands regarding COVID and the lockdowns and what they did to our, our kids. Uh, but before we get into all that, before we get into the weeds of COVID and the public consciousness, can can you give the audience just like a, a broad definition of what mass formation is? Yes, I think I can. Well, mass formation is a is a specific kind of group formation, which is characterized by certain very mind-boggling characteristics of individual mental functioning. So people who are in the grip of a process of mass formation uh, typically, um, for instance, become radically blind for everything that goes against the narrative they believe in. Uh, That's one of the most typical characteristics. It is very well illustrated in the large-scale mass formations that happened in uh, Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union in the first half of the 20th century, really in a baffling way. You can read uh, the testimonies of uh, Nazi officers and you will see that how extremely blind they were, how convinced they were that they did their utmost best for the Jewish people, for instance. It was a very strange thing to to, to read. Uh, It's a very strange thing to read if you read their letters often to to Jewish people in which they they seemed convinced that uh, they really uh, did their best um for their victims actually so um that's one thing people become extremely blind uh for everything that uh goes against the narrative they believe in and in a certain way they are uh, radically unable to take a critical distance of what they believe in that's something really typical then a second characteristic of uh, of mass formation is that when people are in the grip of this process of mass formation uh, they typically uh, or willing to, sacri- to sacrifice all their egoistic and individual interests. In a very strange way, people are um, uh, willing to sacrifice uh, the people uh, they love, uh, the people mm. themselves. Uh, so it's really something that, uh, that is also very typical for mass formation. Uh, and then a third characteristics, characteristic is that... Um, People actually, uh, in a mass, uh, become convinced or typically show the tendency to stigmatize and in a later stage of the process to destroy the people who do not go along with the masses, with the crowd, so who do not belong to the group. And they typically do so as if it is their ethical duty to do so. That's something very typical. You see it in all major mass formations in history, whether it was, we are talking about the Crusades or the French Revolution or the witch hunts or uh, the Soviet Union or Nazi Germany, you see always the same people who are into the process of mass formation become radically convinced that there is their that it is their ethical duty to destroy everyone who does not go along with them. So in this strange type of group formation, which has been studied for 200 years now by such people as uh, Gustave Le Bon, uh, uh, McDougall, Kennedy, Freud, Hannah Arendt, uh, this strange process of mass formation, and that's something that I, I think I'm the first to highlight this in a very explicit uh, way in my book, uh, The Psychology of Totalitarianism, which will be published in, uh, uh, in, uh, in America now, uh, June uh, 16th, I believe. Um, well, 
this strange process of mass formation happens when the population is in a very typical or, or a large part of the population is in a very typical psychological mental state in a in typical psychological state when when very specific conditions are met and the most crucial of these conditions is that there have to be a lot of people who feel socially isolated who do not resonate anymore with their natural and social environment that's something extremely important uh just before the corona crisis so we we've seen throughout the last 3 or 400 years that the number of number of lonely people who feel lonely has been increasing step after step progressively uh and that actually was a consequence of uh, of the industrialization of the world and also of the of the use of of technology for instance that's very typical in one way or another and that's also something that I explain in my book in one way or another the use of technology and the industrialization of the world disconnects people from their social and natural environment and uh that's also the reason why the process of mass formation became increasingly strong throughout the last two centuries as the number of people who feel socially isolated uh, increased the process of mass formation yeah. became increasingly strong and yeah, that's interesting that's- technology um it connects us all all over the world like we're connected in ways we've never been before but yet at the same time people are more lonely and more isolated than than ever before children aren't playing with each other uh teens have stopped dating people are having less sex than ever it's it's really quite a phenomenon uh the comparison you make to to Nazi Germany and how um Nazis believed they were doing the right thing it's it's you know whenever you compare anything to nazis people immediately r- write that comparison off cuz you're not supposed to make that comparison but we saw we're we saw a similar thing with covid like people were losing their jobs and people on the covid hysteria sidelines were cheering this on like this was a good thing like by taking away your job cuz you won't get this shot i'm doing a solid for society i'm doing the right thing if i yell at you in the street cuz you're not wearing the mask if i shame you I'm doing a good thing. It, it was it, we saw families torn apart over that. It was, it's absolutely. really something. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And so, like, the, indeed, the, the the kind of totalitarianism that might emerge now will not be the same as Nazism or, or or Stalinism. It will be a different kind of totalitarianism. It will be a technocratic totalitarianism, which Hannah Arendt warned us already for in 1951. In 1951, she said already that. Uh, after the fall after the 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 fall of nazism and stalinism we would uh, witness the emergence of a new totalitarianism and that totalitarianism she, she said will be a technocratic totalitarianism led uh not by gang leaders such as stalin and hitler but by dull bureaucrats and technocrats she said and i think that's what we are at risk of now a serious risk and as you said there are differences of course with nazism a lot of differences but there is also a similarity and the similarity you point that is exactly this that we are witnessing again a process of mass formation with its typical characteristics that people feel that it is their ethical duty to report everyone to the state who doesn't go along with the narrative or to exclude to try to exclude and stigmatize everyone um so um and that's what we are at risk of and as i said this process of mass formation it actually happens under very specific conditions the first one to be the social isolation and the loneliness which was huge before the corona crisis before the corona crisis over 
30% of the people worldwide reported that they did not have one meaningful relationship at all and that they only connected through the internet wow. with other people. That, that's, that's, and, and the internet is perfect to exchange information. But the deeper, more human and more physical connection that, usually, that exists in a real conversation deteriorates in an online conversation and is destroyed to a large extent. So that's the problem. It's very useful to spread information. But as we move on, as we, as we, as we uh, start to communicate more and more online, we also will see that the quality of the, 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 the human qualities of the, of, the, of the conversations and of connections decrease. Yes. I think I think you nail it with that, that the Internet is a great way to exchange information. And one of the reasons we know governments have been lying to us all over the world is because we're able to directly communicate information back and forth. And that's a beautiful thing. But what you also get hand in hand with that is you get people who are in front of their devices all day long. People. Um, you, you have these apps like Tinder, you know, the dating app where that's, that's the main way men and women interact and meet now is by swiping left or right, depending on an instant physical attraction. People don't go out and meet in normal ways anymore. That's considered creepy. And when you lose that physical contact with people, that leads to depression. And I'm pretty sure the, the most highly prescribed medicines in the world are antidepressants. Correct? I mean, you would know, correct me if I'm wrong, but if it's not number one, it's, it's up there. Yeah, there are like in a, in a small country such as Belgium, there are 300 million doses of antidepressants are used each year in a, with a population wow. of 11 million people. Yes, that's huge. And as you said, indeed, in, in my book, I describe the example, I, I describe why online conversations. Uh, don't have the same psychological effect as real conversations. In real conversations, the bodies and the nervous system of the people who are talking with each other constantly resonate with each other, constantly. And the research, research has shown this very clearly. And uh, with my research group at Ghent University, I study real conversations for 15 years now. And I describe the, the findings in the book. And I show that that's the problem. In an online conversation, this physical resonance this physical resonance, which satisfies like a deep desire in the human being to, to really com connect with, with each other at the, at the physical level as well when we talk. This physical resonance disappears in an online conversation. Why, and that's one of the reasons why exactly people, without really realizing it, without being really aware of it, uh, feel um, in one way or another disconnected or uh, also, yeah, tired yeah. after after long online conversations without really knowing why. But that's the reason. Their their body, our bodies constantly try to connect while we are doing an, having an online conversation, but they constantly fail. And and that's why it has a completely different psychological effect if you talk online than if you talk um, uh, in the real world with each other. So that's the central condition. Before large-scale mass formation to emerge, you have to have a lot of people who feel disconnected. And then from this condition, a second one follows. When people feel disconnected from the other, they typically experience a strong lack of meaning-making. That makes sense because we experience, we have the, we have the experience that our life makes sense 
at the moment we see and we feel that we have an effect on the other, on the other people around us, that we make them happy or that we touch them in one way or another. So if the connection with the other disappears or deteriorates, then we also typically are confronted with lack of meaning making without really knowing why. But we have these experiences of lack of meaning making. And also that just before the corona crisis really was huge. The, the 60% of the people worldwide reported that they considered their own job to be completely meaningless. 60% of the people, only 15% reported. I'm, I'm surprised it's not even higher than that. Honestly, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, mo you know, um, people, specifically men, going to our ancestral roots, weren't meant to sit behind a a desk typing away at a keyboard eight hours a day. That's depressing. That there's no purpose in that. Like men are supposed to be going out and hunting and gathering and like doing. I, you know, don't want to don't want to seem sexist, but manly work, like working with our hands, working with our bodies. Um, so, so let me ask you this. You say that that um, being disconnected, depression and de being disconnected makes us susceptible to mass formation. So we had a high degree of disconnectedness, high degree of of depression that led to this uh, environment in which mass formation took place and people went crazy over covid. And because of that, it allowed the government to lock us down and put these draconian measures on us, which led to even greater disconnectedness. Okay, exactly. so we're more disconnected now. So what is that setting us up for? What is what is going to happen next? A new a new mass formation, which will even be more intense, probably. That's the most probable outcome. But there's one important step in between uh, disconnection and lack of social bond on the one hand. Uh, lack of social bond and lack of meaning making in life and mass formation because that's a very important step uh, when people feel socially isolated and if they, they experience a lack of meaning making they typically will be confronted with so-called free floating anxiety frustration and aggression that's extremely that important mean? that means that people feel anxious frustrated and aggressive without really knowing what they feel anxious for and what and why they feel frustrated uh, or uh, or angry that's a very a, a very aversive mental state if you are feel anxiety but you mm -hmm. don't know what you're anxious for you have the feeling that you cannot control your anxiety and that you cannot protect yourself from what you're anxious for because you don't know what you're anxious for wow yeah you, you're you're describing perfectly so many so many people in my life right now they're they're anxious and they can't put their finger on why they are anxious and okay so go on i'm sorry i didn't mean to interrupt no 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 problem and then then something very, then then something very typical happens that is the the basis of mass formation if under these conditions a narrative is distributed through the mass media indicating providing an object of anxiety such as the virus and the strategy to deal with the object of anxiety then something very typically might happen. Very typical might happen. That is, that all this free-floating anxiety connects suddenly to the object of anxiety. <clears throat> and there might be a huge willingness to participate <clears throat> in the strategy to deal with the object of anxiety, no matter how absurd the strategy is, just because I by see. connecting the anxiety to the object of anxiety and by participating in the strategy, People have a sense of control again. They have the feeling sense that of they purpose. 
gives them no. back that sense of purpose. Exactly. Okay, so so people are feeling this anxiety. They make the connection between the anxiety and COVID, even though that may not necessarily be it. So then becoming a COVID warrior gives them a new sense of purpose, which is exactly. how you build an, an army of, of people to carry out your evil doing, I guess. Yeah. Wow. That's the first step. That's the first step of mass formation, which happens every time. The Crusades, uh, uh, in the Crusades, it was... Uh, the Muslims who were the object of anxiety in the witch hunts, it were the, the witches who were the object of anxiety in the French Revolution. It was the, the Ancien Regime that was the object of anxiety in Nazi Germany, the Jews, and the Soviet Union, the aristocracy, and so on. The first step of the process of mass formation always is that the free-floating anxiety connects to an object of anxiety, and then that people are willing to participate in a strategy for instance, the war with the virus or the war with the anti-vaxxers. That's typically the first thing. And, and who is the object of it now? Is it, <clears throat> is it the, is it the um, people who just won't comply? People who are yeah. tr- thinking for themselves? That's the object of it? People who, people who well, refuse the, to get the vaccine? In the beginning, it was the virus itself, I think. Okay. But, uh, but after a while, it more and more became um, the object of anxiety more and more was situated at the, at the level of the people who didn't want to buy into the narrative and who did to, who went against the narrative. So <clears throat> that's indeed as a first step, this connection of the anxiety to the object of anxiety. But then a second step happens, which is even more important in a second step, because many people at the same time participate in the strategy to deal with the object of anxiety. A new kind of social bond emerges. Mm. A new kind of social bond. People feel connected again. They fight this collective heroic battle with the object so of anxiety. Yeah. So you but, feel purpose and you're connected again. You feel purpose in that you're you're fighting COVID and you feel uh, these people who are isolated now feel connected to these other warriors. Indeed. And 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 at the same time, they also have an object to direct their frustration and aggression on. So that's also a huge psychological advantage. And the the big problem is that this new social bond that emerges, this new group, this mass or this crowd that emerges, this new social bond is not a social bond, and that's the trick, it's not a social bond between individuals. This group is not formed because individuals connect to each other. This group is formed, this mass is formed because individuals separately all connect to the collective. They have a collective ideal. And that makes a huge difference. The longer a mass exists and the further the process of mass formation goes, the more the social bonds between the individuals deteriorate. And the stronger the bond becomes between the individual and the collective. And that's exactly what we have been witnessing in the corona crisis. Yes. In the corona crisis, everyone accepted that if someone got an accident on the street, you were no longer allowed to help him. That was on the websites here in Belgium, Holland, and Europe. You were no longer allowed to help him. So people were all talking about solidarity and citizenship, but they accepted that they could no longer help each other when they got an accident, or wow. they accepted that if their parents were dying, that they were not yeah. able to see them. So mm-hmm. that's... It's so typical for Sick. all mass formation and also all totalitarianism because totalitarianism is always based on mass formation. 
In contrast with, for instance, a classical dictatorship, which is not based on mass formation. But that's, a, that's why in a totalitarian state, we always see that the state or the population ends up in a radically paranoid atmosphere. People don't trust each other. People don't feel connected to each other. People demand of each other that everyone, every individual, sacrifices itself for the collective. And that's, that's, that is explained by this process of mass formation, which sucks all the energy away from the individual social bonds and invests all the psychological energy in the bond between the individual and the state or the collective. And that makes it so um, destructive, the process of mass formation. That makes that, like mass, mass formation is a, 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 a symptomatic solution for loneliness, but it's symptomatic because it creates even more loneliness and it prepares the population for a new mass formation, which is even stronger. And that's the entire problem. It's extremely strong. It's exactly the same. Psychologically, technically speaking, mass formation is exactly, it's identical to, to hypnosis. The process is exactly the same as hypnosis. Wow. Yeah. And the, and the same kind of people that are susceptible to hypnosis are probably more susceptible to mass formation. Um, the way people accepted, just laid down and accepted that it was normal to not be able to kiss your mother goodbye as she was dying really bothered me. What bothered me just as much, if not more, is the way people so willingly allowed their children to be abused by not here in California. They didn't go to children did not go to school for a year. And then when they went back, they had to wear masks all day for another year. So just two years of abuse that, that people went along with that really bothers me. And I want to ask you about that. But before that um, you triggered something in me when you're talking about how um, the bond is to the collective and the ideal more so than bonding between an individual. And I want to ask you, and this, this question might actually upset some listeners, but I'm, I'm curious, like the way in which you were describing it sounded a little bit to me like religion. Is it, is that what religion is in some ways or is, is this different? Would you separate that? I think it depends. I think it depends. If okay. you're talking about, state religion and institu uh, institutionalized religion and dogmatic religion might come close sometimes, yes. But I think that if you're talking about the more original, seminal religious experience, I don't think it's uh, correct to state it like that because the original religious ex experience usually is an experience in which people feel very connected, I think, with their fellow human beings. So it depends, I think. If you talk about institutionalized religion, dogmatic, then I think it applies. I don't, then I think it's right to say that it's often a kind of mass formation. At, le at least uh, the likes of people such as uh, Gustave Le Bon and uh, Freud um, um, claimed that religion sometimes could be a type of mass formation. I also believe that, yes. Um, but yeah. the original seminal experience. Yeah. I don't. I don't want to. I don't want to believe that. I don't want to think that. But the way in which you described how it comes about, it it led me to that question because it sounds sounds familiar. So so yeah. in religion, you're saying when people have a, a a religious experience, they're they're bonding with other individuals who share those 
beliefs in a more personal way? Yes, or even with the people who do not share their, uh, this belief. And, uh, I think if, if they only connect to the people who share the same belief, I think in that case, it's a, it's a type of mass formation. Okay. Interesting. Now, exa exactly. Because, because, because in that uh, case, the, the religious community imposes one narrative and one opinion to the group. And that's typical of a mass. In masses, people all think the same. They all conform to each other. Mm -hmm. There's this group think in mass formation. <clears throat> yes. Okay. Um, so get, getting back to the kids and, and the, the family members, it, it was ex extremely disturbing to me how people just just took it. And I, I've said it several times on this show that, that our children are going to look back upon our generation of parents and they're going to be ashamed of us and wonder why we didn't fight for them, why we didn't fight for, for their right to be like normal citizens. Why do you think parents were so easily pushed over by the state? Yeah, because be, exactly because of this strange characteristic that, <clears throat> that, that even the strongest bonds between human beings, for instance, the bond between a mother and her child. Um, um, Cause oh, oh, let me, you, you said, you said um, one of the, one of the characteristics necessary is um, isolation. Typically, a parent and a child have a pretty serious bond. Those are not two people who are probably feeling isolated, I wouldn't think. So what makes that parent susceptible to the same bullshit? Because the parent will become fanatically convinced that uh, everybody, also the, the, the child, uh, has to stick to the collective narrative. I can give you a strong example. Uh, five weeks ago, I had this conversation online, uh, or, or which is available online now, with uh, Shoreh Feshtali, an Iranian woman who, um, who was in Iran during the uh, revolution in Iran in 1979, I believe. Um, and she, in, during the revolution... He also, there was also an emergence of a, of a mass formation phenomenon, which also led to a totalitarian state in Iran in the, in the next decades. And she, she said that she had witnessed, that she had seen with her own eyes how a mother reported her son to the government and how she put the rope around his neck just before oh he God. was hung. And how, and how she claimed, how this mother claimed uh, a sign of uh, how, how his mother supposed that she really had been um, doing a heroic something heroic. She said, "I was baffled. It was mind-boggling to see what what uh, what happened before my eyes. People were reporting the the, the 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 their children, their relatives, their family members members to the government. They were so convinced uh, of this new solidarity that they all had to show solidarity to the state narrative that they just." were prepared to sacrifice yeah. everyone, including that is themselves. heartbreaking. That, that, that is heartbreaking. And that goes back to what you said at the beginning about how, you know, like even the Nazis, they thought they were, they people, people in history generally think they're good people all throughout history at the time, like slave owners didn't think they were doing anything wrong. Like people generally consider themselves 
to be good. And it's only with hindsight, which once we step out of a, a current situation or get, get and can look back on history that we can see how badly society screwed up. But some people in the in that time and space can see it as it's happening. And, yes. and you see it. I've seen it. I know a lot of people who have seen it, but then those people who do see it are shunned as being part of the problem, being yes. evil. Typical. Yes. Typical. Um, you know, you, we've seen the media silence uh, people like Dr. Robert Malone and, and you know, hundreds of people. We got kicked off of Twitter. Um, let me ask you about You're an expert in statistics. Well, can, I, can I first uh, add yeah, something yeah. To, mm-hmm. to, what you, to what you just said? Yes. Indeed, the, the, in a mass or in a crowd, there always is a strong intolerance for dissonant voices, typically. And you can understand that because mass formation is a kind of hypnosis. It's identical to hypnosis, which means what happens in hypnosis is the following. A hypnotist withdraws the attention from the environment, from reality, and focuses it on one small aspect of, of, of reality. And once all the psychological energy and all the attention is focused on one small aspect of reality, you see that the rest of reality seems to disappear. The hypnotized person is no longer aware of the rest of reality. And this mm-hmm. mechanism is incredibly strong, so strong that you perfectly can use a simple hypnotic procedure to make someone insensitive, insensitive to pain during a surgical operation. This happens hundreds of times in Belgium here. I've seen it once with my own eyes, and you can't imagine it. The Once the uh, hypnotist or the doctor who, who is doing the hypnosis uh, starts talking in a hypnotic, hypnotic, hypnotic way to the, to the patient, he suddenly gives a sign to the surgeon, and then the surgeon can cut through the flesh, through the skin, through the flesh, and sometimes can cut straight through the breastbone to do an open heart operation, and the person won't notice it. In mass formation, wow. in mass formation, we are talking about exactly the same phenomenon. First, all the attention and all the effects, anxiety, frustration, aggression, um, uh, is detached from, from the environment, and then suddenly, through this narrative in the mass media indicating an object of anxiety, it's all focused on one point, for instance, the corona victims. And suddenly it is as if there are no other victims anymore. Mm -hmm. People don't see them anymore. They don't see the people, the children who are starving from hunger as a consequence of the lockdowns in the developing countries. They don't see the people who will die because of the delayed uh, operations and so on. So that's so typical. This mechanism is so strong. Once people are in it, they are really in the grip of this process. And at that moment, they absolutely don't want to wake up. They don't want to wake up because if they wake up, they would be confronted again with all these terrible conditions, such as this loneliness, this lack of meaning making, this free-floating anxiety, frustration, aggression. That's what they don't want. They want to stay in this hypnotic state. And that's why they become so intolerant for dissonant voices. That's exactly why. Yeah. And, and also if they wake up, they have to confront the reality that they were horribly wrong and did bad yeah, things, which is that something is well. people aren't good at. Um, yeah. You kind of, you, with the, the hypnosis, you kind of answered what I wanted to ask next. And it, it's, you, you know, you're a statistician. And I, I bought into COVID hook, line and sinker in like January and February when we were hearing it on the news and I work in healthcare 
and uh, we wore our masks and we isolated for a for the first couple weeks in March. And then by late March, early April, the data was starting to come out and the data made it very clear that the disease was not as dangerous as they were telling it us it was. And at that point, I started spreading that message and I couldn't understand why almost everybody I knew was still terrified. Then two months after that, Black Lives Matter uh, erupted in chaos and protests and the protests got violent. And the same people who were telling us we couldn't leave our house because we were going to die or we were going to kill other people were now telling us it's okay that they're doing it. Uh, They're not spreading the disease. And when that happened, I was sure the whole world would wake up and see through all this bullshit. Like this was a clear contradiction. They're clearly stepping all over their own narrative and people still did not see it. And I think, I think what you said about hypnosis is it. They got so laser focused on that one thing that they couldn't they couldn't see the contradiction. They couldn't they couldn't see the hypocrisy. They could only see that that one thing. And now, 2 years in, people are either still denying it because they don't want to have to confront everything they did that was wrong or they're starting as we're starting to see in the news they're starting to rewrite history a little bit. Rewrite rewrite it in a ways that that like we oh we didn't have the data so we didn't know and nobody knew but that's just not true no no in the beginning of the crisis actually you know i actually don't call myself a statistician i'm a psychologist but i but i haven't but i have an additional degree i have an additional master in statistics so i but 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 for me a statistician is someone who who um uh who is a uh Doing statistics day in day out, and that's not what I do. I I, I'm, I have been involved in statistics daily. Uh, okay, but you understand them very well. Yes. Anyway, but indeed, that's in the beginning of the crisis. It was also the first thing I did. I started to study the statistics a little bit, and I noticed almost immediately, together with people such as John Ioannidis of Stanford, this famous medical statistician, I noticed almost immediately that the mortality rates of the virus were dramatically overestimated, like by the factor 10, I think. Yeah. And, and, and when, when I tried to, to, to show this to my, to my peers or to my, to my colleagues, most of them really neglected that they even became angry. And in, I, I, I realized immediately that, it probably, probably, uh, that I probably wouldn't succeed in, in, in showing them. Uh, uh, what the question, what the problem was, just because I, I noticed immediately that what was, or, or it, in the first weeks of the crisis, I started to be aware of the fact that what we were dealing with in this society was actually a large-scale process of mass formation. And the problem with that is, once people are into the process of mass formation, and once their field of attention is narrowed down, narrowed, became narrow, then rational counter-arguments just don't work anymore. Simply, no. well, because if you if you try to formulate, if you try to articulate. Uh, an, an argument against the narrative, you have no other option than to use mental representations than to refer to a part of reality that does not exist anymore for the person or a part of reality to which no psychological energy, no attention is attached anymore. So you can talk as long as you want. Your words literally will have no psychological weight. They will have no impact just because the representations you used 
have no psychological energy anymore. And that's, that's why that's something extremely important. Gustave Le Bon mentioned already in the 19th century that when a crowd or a mass emerges, there is always a group who doesn't go along with it, who doesn't buy into the narrative, the, the mass narrative. But, and he says that this group typically is baffled by what they see and they try to wake the masses up. They try to, 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 to show them that they are going along with a narrative that is utterly absurd or blatantly wrong. And you will always see, Gustave Le Bon said, you will always see that this doesn't work. You cannot wake up the masses, but, and now it comes, and that's the most important aspect of my book. I, I describe this in detail. You won't succeed with rational argumentations to wake the, the masses up, to wake the people up who are in the grip of the process of mass formation, but your words, the resonance of your voice will disturb the hypnosis, and it will make that the hypnosis does not become so deep that the masses start to be fanatically convinced that they have to destroy the people who do not go along with them. History shows this time and time again. Usually, after a while, the opposition, the dissonant voice, starts mm. to feel exhausted and they have the feeling that it doesn't make a difference whether they talk or not. And that's not true. And it's exactly at the moment that the dissonant voice stops to speak out, that the, the mass, the masses, the crowd, the totalitarian state, and, and the totalitarian state, state which is based on the crowd, starts to commit cruelties. This happened in 1930 in the Soviet Union. The opposition went underground, stopped speaking out in public space, and within a period of six months to one year, Stalin started his large purges, which uh, claimed uh, tens of millions of casualties. And I'm, I'm a little confused by what you're saying, because you're saying no. you can't wake them up. No. You can't win an argument with them, but you're saying if, if you stop talking, it's going to get worse. Like, like if we didn't keep ranting, everything they did during COVID would have been way worse. Well, well how are we making any effect if we're not winning any of the arguments? Yeah. No, yes, indeed. Because you will never be able to convince the people who are in the masses through your rational argumentation, but you will disturb the mass formation in the hypnotic state, that's what happens. Because mass formation is created, is induced by the voice of a leader. That's typically, that's, that's why totalitarian states, which are based on mass formation, always use um, uh, indoctrination and propaganda as their first strategies. Terror is only the third option. And this indoctrination and propaganda is constantly, this, this, the hypnotizing effect of the indoctrination and propaganda is constantly disturbed by the dissonant voices. So the masses won't wake up, but you will disturb this hypnotic state and you will make sure that it doesn't go so deep that they become fanatically convinced that they have to destroy the people who do not go along with them. As I said, that happened in the Soviet Union. Opposition, the dissonant voice stopped speaking out. And the destruction campaign started within six months or maybe 10 months. In Nazi Germany, exactly the same. In 1935, the opposition went on the ground, stopped speaking out. The, uh, the, uh, uh, the destruction of 
and the destruction of certain specific uh, social groups started. And that's all, that also shows us something very clearly, that a totalitarian state is radically different from a classical dictatorship. For instance, on that point, if a classical dictator succeeds in silencing the opposition, he typically will become, his aggression will mitigate. He will become less aggressive just because he dis, he, he he can use his brains. He's awake. He knows that now that he is in charge, now that he has the power in the public space, he should be friendly to the people and try to convince them that he will be a good leader. And exactly this kind of common sense is lacking in a totalitarian le leader who is hypnotized himself and who starts to become more and more fanatically convinced that he has to impose his totalitarian ideology to the state, that he has to reshape uh, the state system according to his fanatic totalitarian ide ideology. So that's, that's, that's the most crucial message we can bring. You're, to ma the you're making a, an actual, like, literal um, comparison between hypnosis and mass formation like they are literally hypnotized so like when you like when you're at a show a comedy show and someone's hypnotized if you get up and shout in their face you might break through that a little bit that's kind of what you're saying if we're not going to win any arguments we're not going to wake them up but we can disrupt that hypnosis signal a little bit which keeps yeah. it okay <clears throat> on a lesser yeah. frequency um all right the statistics, the, the 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 lies, the the exaggerations about the death rate. Um. Well, they they lied about the death rates. They exaggerated about the death rates. But even before that, the the models they put out were fantastically exaggerated and wrong. Do you believe? Now, this is just, I guess, an opinion. But do you think these were like honest mistakes, or do you think this was? a tool they were using as part of this uh, mass formation? It depends. For the majority of the statisticians and the researchers involved, uh, it was not an intentional uh, manipulation of the population, I think. I've seen professors in statistics who suddenly were not capable anymore of understanding that if you do more PCR tests, you will detect more uh, positive cases. I've seen people with, with, with a master's degree in statistics, with professors in statistics, who suddenly were not able to see this anymore, or at least who refused to change their models when I remarked that, of course, they had to control for the number of tests that were carried out. So some of the, that's a strange, baffling effect of mass formation that it makes even the most intelligent people in a blind in an extremely strange way. So that doesn't take away, of course. There were certain institutions involved in this crisis who were knowing what they were doing and who, who really, I think, tried to push forward their ideology in society, who, uh, who used um, a way of counting uh, the number of victims claimed by the virus, uh, of which they knew that it would be an overestimation of the number of, fight, of, of victims, and so on. I think it's a combination. I think that there is always uh, a certain number of people who use uh, a state of anxiety of the population to promote and to push forward their own ideological preferences. That definitely mm -hmm. happens. 
I always, I always make a strict distinction between the ideology that is um, uh, between the ideology and the narratives that are used. So, like the ideology in the current situation um, that um, is getting a grip on the world is the transhumanist ideology. I think there are a set mm -hmm. of people. If you read the books of Harari, for instance, Yuval Harari, you see that. There are many people, a surprisingly a large number of people who believe that the only solution for the problems we are facing now in society, real or imagined, is uh, to improve or to technological control. They mm -hmm. believe that the population has to be technologically controlled more and more. So that's, they want to replace uh, uh, the democratic state system by a technocratic state system. Mm -hmm. And that's the ideology. But many people really fanatically believe that uh, otherwise we'll never be, never be able to, to, to solve the problems and that in any case, uh, we will be better off uh, in a strictly technologically controlled um, uh, state system. And that's the ideology. And then you have the narratives that are used to convince the population to accept uh, uh, this reshape of society according to this ideology and that those narratives are the climate narrative it is the uh, BLM narrative it is the, uh, the, 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 uh, the corona narrative that are all narratives that are used just to, to convince the people to accept all these ideolo ideological changes uh, that, that certain institutions um, uh, want, to, want to realize and so that's, that's important, I think. Totalitarian leaders, and I'm talking then about the leaders in the public space, the people who articulate the narrative, the narratives in public space, totalitarian leaders are usually convinced uh, of their own ideology. They believe blindly in their own ideology, in this case, transhumanism or, or technocracy. They blindly believe in that. Gustave Le Bon said they are hypnotized by their own ideology, but only, but a certain part of the, uh, of the leaders, of the totalitarian leaders, of the leaders of the masses, uh, don't believe a word of the narratives they use. They use the narratives just as a way to manipulate, uh, to push people in a certain direction. And then you have another part of the, of the, of the, of the experts and the leaders involved uh, in this situation, for instance, who both believe the ideology and the narratives. I know many people who are extremely intelligent and who are really radically unable in a way that is, goes beyond understanding, um, yeah. that uh, uh, they're radically blind for all these simple um, uh, examples we, we can give at the statistical level, which all show that in many cases, in many respects, uh, the narrative is absurd. Uh, the, um, if, you, if, you, if you just make this simple cost-benefit analysis, like how many victims could the virus claim and how many victims will the measures claim? This simple cost-benefit analysis is beyond the understanding of, of many of the, of, the, of the highly intelligent experts. Very strange. Yeah, I mean, even 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 I could see that. I mean, even I could see that at the start of this. I I, I everybody can see. I made yeah. a remark that we're going to end up 
possibly with more dead people as a result of these lockdowns. It's going to kill the economy. It's going to cause poverty. Poverty kills. I wasn't even accounting for the fact that it was going to lead to food shortages and whatnot, which we're now going to be faced with very soon. Like the damage we're going to see as a result of all this, we're going to be feeling for a decade. Um, I, I found it interesting that you brought up transhumanism. You're the third guest in a row who brought that up. I didn't know you were going to bring it up. I didn't know the last two were going to bring it up. I had a guy on the show a couple of years ago who ran for president in this country as a transhumanist. And to be honest, it was fascinating. Like I, I was fascinated by his ideas now yep. retroactively with all I've learned since then, it's really kind of terrifying to me. I'm, I'm wondering if you're at all familiar with the World Economic Forum and the the, the Great Reset that Klaus Schwab wrote about. And yeah, if, yeah, you, if you think this ties in in any way. Yes, I'm familiar with, with, the, with, the, with, the, with this work. And it's an, it's an extreme example of a, of a, of a transhumanist ideologist. Uh, so, um, yes, I know. And I, and I know that most of these people really believe that they will save the world, that they, that they will... That they will um uh really create uh, the ideal society that's exactly what totalitarians are always convinced of they are not these uh, psychopathic perverse monsters or something they are not they are they are blind fanatic ideologists this is so important yeah to, to stress this time and time again hannah arendt also they're drinking their own juice they believe their own yes. stuff so they're not yeah. big they're not big evil monsters they think they are going to save the world they think they're going to save all of us by making us their prisoners evil. it's a kind of evil, they're doing but, evil but they don't believe yeah. that they are no no indeed but that that's something that hannah arendt shows us in such a nice and beautiful way totalitarian le leaders don't do it for the money they don't do it for the power in the first place they do it because they want to stick to their ideological fiction because they want to reshape society according to one specific ide ideological fiction and they do it without uh, uh, they do it in a relentless way, in an absolutely relentless way, because they are because they are so fanatically convinced that they will save the world. They think everything is justified. Lying, doesn't that, manipulating, doesn't cheating, that make them more dangerous than just an an evil person who is out to to get it for themselves? Like these people are convinced they're like almost like godlike figures. They're going to save us all. Like, doesn't that make them extremely dangerous? Uh, that it is. They are. They are. They, of course, they are extremely dangerous. And to talk about, you know, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, uh, Yuval Harari, his books, uh, Homo Deus. Uh, for instance, one of the books, his second book, was called Homo Deus, the Godlike Man. And he talked. He exactly. That's exactly what he describes. He describes that uh, it is within the reach of the human being now to become God. <laughs> that's that's exactly what he says. He say, he mentions it time and time again in his book. And that 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 has always been uh, the dream of totalitarian leaders. So uh, and and it's like a kind of yeah blind madness that, that yeah anybody that, who uh, thinks anybody who thinks they, they can save the world and save us all is a danger because they they're they're gonna they think they know better than everybody else and they're gonna do anything that they're they're guided by an ideology which is almost like a religion and they're gonna do whatever they have to do to save the world. If it, exactly. Even if it means making us all prisoners. So 
this is all scary. We, we went through this mass formation. Uh, the world is now in a worse place. People are now more lonely. Uh, poverty is, is creeping up. The wealth gap is bigger than it's ever been before in history. Inflation is out of control. People are going to start going hungry. Um, coronavirus is going to circle back around in the fall. Uh, they're probably going to start the same nonsense again. It seems like we're headed for some very bad times in this world. So we're, we're coming up on time. You, you, all this paints a very grim picture. Give us a little hope. Like what, what can we all do? How do we get out of this? What's, what's the path forward? There, There is hope. Definitely. And exactly because there is one cynical advantage of totalitarian systems and of uh, mass formation. And it is that it always destroys itself in a relatively short period of time. That's the advantage. That's also something that I explain in my book, why it is always self-destructive. And Arendt said, a totalitarian state is always a monster that in the end devours its own children. But, so it is self-destructive. The masses are always self-destructive. It has been described by Freud, by Gustave Le Bon, by Kennedy. Everyone knows that. The masses are self-destructive. But you have to find a way. You have to make sure that they f- destroy themselves first before they destroy you. That's yeah. the challenge. Yeah. That's the challenge. And that's exactly why you have to continue. We all have to continue to speak out. Not because we are we believe that we will be able to wake them up, but because we will disturb the process of mass formation, make sure that it doesn't become so deep that they start to destroy or to, to eliminate people who do not go along with the masses. And in that way, the masses will weaken themselves more and more and more until they become so weak that the group that doesn't go along with the mass yeah. can become can become the guiding principle in society. There are right several... Yeah, that, that's the simple yep. strategical strategical. I, w- I want to make sure my, my listeners get that because I'm frustrated. I know a lot of them are because you speak out and you speak out and you speak out and you feel like you're being ignored. You feel like you, you lose, you do lose friends. Uh, you become, you get mocked by a lot of people. I've, I've taken a, a lot of crap for this show. So your message is keep doing it. We have to keep doing it because if, if we go underground and we only start talking to each other, we do end up with Nazi Germany. Like it does get worse. So we have to keep talking. We got to interrupt that signal by running our fat mouths. That, that's what exactly, he's telling us. Exactly. That's that's exactly what I what I what I want to say. So and we have to do we have to speak, I think, really just in a quiet way, in a in a in a in a in a in a way in which we just say, like, look, that's you have your opinion, and I don't want to convince you. But I just want to claim my right to articulate my opinion as well. I will do it, and then you can do what you want. You can believe it or not, but I will just tell you what I think. Everybody has his own style. Everybody has to speak out in his own way, according to his own subjective preferences. But it's just that's the best, usually, as a general rule, that's important. Just say, like, look, that's your opinion. I will articulate mine. And then we are uh, we will uh, accept each other's opinion. <clears throat> That's what you have to do. And if we continue to push, if people don't agree, and we continue to try to convince them too long, then 
you will have the opposite effect. Their subjective system will close, will close down. And so we, we don't have to try that. We just have to know that simply expressing our opinion uh, already has an effect that we will not be able to observe immediately. We will not be granted the pleasure to hear the other person say that we are right, but we don't have to. That's right. not necessary. We just right. have to. It, that's a that's a basic want and desire from someone when they are debating something. You want to hear that? Okay, you're right. I get it. Or even like a year later, after all this, you want to hear? You know what? You were right. I was wrong, but you're not going to get that. And you have to be happy not to get that. Even when it becomes painfully obvious that you were right and they were wrong, you're never going to, and nobody wants an, I told you so. So just keep speaking the truth. I thank you for speaking the truth. Um, I thank you for having the courage to, I, I know your colleagues are probably giving you hell. Like most of the academic world is not on your side. So I really appreciate your courage. Thank you for coming on the show. Uh, tell people again about about your book, uh, where they can where they can get that. Uh, I guess it's not for sale yet, but can they pre-order? Uh, they can pre-order yes through Amazon. It's uh, uh, the title is the Psychology of Totalitarianism. Maybe we can add a link or something. Um, there are other. Yes, options I'll do that. To... I'll put it in the show notes. Check the show notes, people. Yeah, perfect. All right. Perfect. Thank you so much, Doctor. Thank really you very much for inviting me. All right. Yes. Take care. I'm going to bed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sleep well.